As America marks the anniversary of last year's January 6th insurrection in Washington, we'll talk with the author of a new book about the state of American democracy. That's ahead on this edition of Capital Cast. Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol in Washington. It was an event that left many people feeling that the very essence of American democracy was under threat. But some experts will argue that the pillars of American democracy have been eroding for some time, and the causes of that go far beyond the presidency of Donald Trump or the contested 2020 elections. My guest today is an author and University of Illinois at Chicago political science professor Dick Simpson, who has a new book coming out this spring from the University of Illinois Press. It's called Democracy's Rebirth, The View from Chicago, and in it he examines many of the threats to democracy using Chicago as a microcosm for the nation as a whole. Professor Simpson is also a former Chicago City Alderman and a two-time candidate for Congress. Professor Simpson, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Peter. So the first thing that struck me was the title of your book, Democracy's Rebirth. It seems to convey a tone of both peril and optimism. Why does democracy need to be reborn? What went wrong with it the first time? Well, we've actually had several. Um, The Civil War, Abraham Lincoln talked about the rebirth of democracy. Um, as we came out of that terrible struggle in the 19th century. Um, We've had a flaw democracy at different times, but right now in the 21st century, we have unique problems. Uh, To some extent, we've seen some of them before, like income inequality in the Gilded Age or the problems of depression and the Great Depression. But um, the forces of globalization the new technologies, the problem of the big lie um, that was spread and became the uh, the cause of the January 6th insurrection that you referenced. Uh, these are part of the problems that are both old and new. And it's our obligation to, uh, to try and fix the problems and to move forward with American life, to live up to the ideals of the Declaration of the Constitution. And one of the threats that you talk about in the book is uh, political gerrymandering. This term, I just looked it up, it actually dates back to the early 19th century, so it's almost as old as the country itself. What's happening now, do you think, that makes it worse than ever? Part of it is that it's being used so broadly in the country. It's not just Illinois where we uh, just went through the remapping process with some rather strange, uh, funny lines coming out from the state legislature in the process. But in Republican areas, it's even worse. Um, They have, in many cases, diluted the uh, vote of minorities. They've tried to pack all of the Democrats into a few districts so they could get more seats and take back the House of Representatives. Uh, And this isn't happening in just one place. There are at least a dozen states across the United States today that have practiced gerrymandering. And it's 
it's simply an evil that we should easily overcome because what you have is the public officials choosing uh, their constituents rather than the constituents choosing their public officials. And I know that Chicago, the city of Chicago, is now going through the process of redrawing aldermanic ward ward lines. Uh, we haven't followed that very closely at Capital News Illinois, but we've certainly seen a lot written about it. Uh, why is it being so contentious there? Well, it's contentious in Chicago, particularly because it's become racial. Um, the biggest fight is actually between uh, Latinos and African-Americans uh, to determine which of them will gain advantage. In Chicago, we've lost essentially a quarter of a million African-Americans and we've gained almost that many Latinos. Uh, and the, uh, the current balance in the city council, which was set a decade ago in the last uh, remap, uh, has become uh, inaccurate. In addition, we have uh, the other problem, which is usual, which is each of the incumbents is trying to protect their own turf and get to ensure their own reelection. So the battle over the map in Chicago is quite fierce. There was an independent remap effort that was quite successful outside the, uh, the city council process. Uh, but it is uncertain whether we will come out with anything like a fair map. Uh, there are multiple maps in contention in Chicago. It will have to be decided this spring, but unlike the state legislature and the Congress, uh, we don't have an election until 2023. So we have a little more time to try and straighten out the remapping in Chicago. But I can tell you that uh, the remapping in Chicago has been very contentious. Uh, we could do a better job. Uh, there is multiple experiences across the country with independent mapping commissions that do a job that doesn't either automatically protect incumbents or automatically hurt uh, different racial and ethnic groups. Does it hurt also that the U.S. Supreme Court has basically said that uh, partisan gerrymandering is not their concern? It's not the court's concern, uh, and they aren't going to step into that thicket. Um, that has been a problem. Uh, that is, they've allowed gerrymandering to go on, but we can easily correct it by simply adopting uh, probably state by state, maybe by federal legislation, a uh, simple rule by which uh, we go through a fair process. We can't do it in time for this election. It will have to be for the uh, census in uh, 2030, uh, when we will again be redrawing all of the districts in America. You have to remember there are 540,000 elections held for public officials in the United States every four-year cycle. So there are a lot of offices. Some of them are created fairly. Some of them, the public officials try and cheat to keep themselves in office. Okay, another thing you write about is uh, non-participation by voters. I'm old enough to remember when 18-year-olds first gained the right to vote. Uh, was it the 72 election? And that uh, I think that still marks the high point for voter participation for uh, young people. Why is it so hard to get voters out to the polls? So first of all, the good news is in the 2020 election, because it was so contested, particularly at the presidential level, 
uh, but all the way up and down the ballot. Uh, we had the highest turnout of all citizens that we've had since the 19th century. We had six, roughly 67% participation by those who are eligible to vote in the United States. And so that's been our high watermark. The problem is, and we can come back to it as we talk about other problems in democracy, is it was caused by polarization and uh, the polarization is getting much worse and led to things like the January 6th insurrection. Uh, but the participation, there are some very simple things we can do to increase participation. I'll just give you an example from my university. At my university in the 2012 presidential election, only 42% of the students voted who were eligible. By the time of, of 2016, when Donald Trump was first elected, we had 55% participation. And in this last election, we had 67% participation. We had the largest increase in student voting uh, of any public university in the country. And there were some very simple things we did. We started registering students to vote when they got their uh, student ID. Uh, the state of Illinois adopted um, uh, automatic voter registration, which meant it was possible to do it electronically and simply. We moved early voting sites onto campus itself so students could vote early in elections and uh, several thousand each election take advantage of that opportunity as do faculty and staff of the campus. Um, as you do all of those things and you do civic engagement education, which we've been working on for more than a decade at my school, you begin to turn around the apathy, but it is an ongoing process. We still, even at the 67%, voting that we had in the last election, we still have one of the lowest voting totals of any democracy, uh, the, such as Western Europe, which often votes at 80 or 90%. Uh, Australia votes at a much higher rate. So we still have a ways to go, but the good news is at least it has begun to turn around. But that's one of the reasons for the title of the book, Democracy's Rebirth. We look at how dire the problems are, and we don't recognize that we may already be on the path to solution, and that they're very practical steps in each of these areas, which would allow us to move forward incrementally and effectively. You make the point that Illinois has adopted some very progressive voting laws that make it extremely easy to vote. Uh, in other states, especially in Republican-led states, they're going in the opposite direction. Uh, what do you make of these uh, voter restriction laws that we're seeing pop up in places like Texas and Georgia, elsewhere? Yeah, there have been, uh, since the uh, 2000 election, uh, uh, several hundred attempts to do what is generally called voter suppression. That is uh, requiring uh, ID laws, not allowing felons to vote, uh, rolling back uh, uh, requirements, um, ending things like um, mail-in ballots that they had to adopt because of the pandemic in the last election in other states, and now they want to reverse that, and on and on. Each state has its own set of suppressions that are trying to limit the vote. The reason for that in Republican areas is that they think Democrats uh, are more likely to be advantaged if people, more people vote. 
um, that it's more likely to be poor people, minorities, students, youth, uh, none of whom are known to be supporters of Republicans in, in general. Okay, and a little bit earlier, you mentioned the wealth and income gaps. Uh, it, that has been growing at an alarming rate in recent decades. What is it about that that affects the nature of democracy itself? Well, let me give you a specific. One of the things I try and do in the book is use specific local examples as well as the general. I mean, I can tell you how bad the gap is nationally. Uh, for instance, the 540 billionaires in the United States have more wealth than the bottom uh, 50% of America, uh, just in their own hands and their own family. So we could go through those kind of statistics, and they're in the book. But if you take the example of the city of Chicago, and one of the most striking things to look at is the disappearance of the middle class. And we have a very specific, easy way to measure that now. If you look at the middle class in Chicago in 1970, you look at the census tracts, we had middle class incomes, you'll find that there were 46% of the census tracts where people lived were middle class. There were some rich areas, there were some poor areas, but roughly half of Chicago was middle class neighborhoods. If you look at the 2020 census results, only 16% of the neighborhoods or the census tracts in Chicago are actually still middle class. That's a huge drop. We have a bigger gap between the rich and the poor anytime since the Great Depression or before that, the Gilded Age of the 19th century. And that gap is growing every year. Uh, it is not only in income, but it's in wealth. That is the money that's already that you already have. Uh, people are going to be losing houses. They're going to be losing their uh, their apartments because they weren't able to pay rent in COVID times. Many people have lost their jobs and have pulled out of the economy. We are having a major crisis in terms of this gap. But to your question, why do we care? Why do we, from a democracy point of view, why do we care whether or not we have a middle class? Well, Thomas Jefferson, uh, in addition to writing the declaration, believed that the yeoman farmer or the middle class of his day were the bedrock of democracy. He could easily see that the rich people are likely to go for autocrats. The poor people might go for tyranny of the mob, but the middle class who had some property who could were relatively economically secure would be interested in preserving the country and preserving some level of stability, and they would vote accordingly. And so Jefferson and nearly all of our founding fathers believed that it was essential that the country have a, uh, a solid rock base, which in addition to the aristocrats who might be helpful in gathering and ruling the country, would be the middle class. Without them, democracy would perish. So what can we do about that? Well, we can do a lot of things very simply. I mean, the easiest one to see is we can make sure that uh, the corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share of the taxes, um, which is the reverse of the Trump uh, tax cut. Uh, it means increasing the taxes. But beyond that, it means regulation. 
one of the problems isn't just that people have a lot of wealth. It's turned out that those who are wealthy participate more, they give more campaign money, they pay lobbyists, and they write the laws, they buy the politicians and write the laws that guarantee their continued success. So it's um, these problems are interrelated and at least some parts of them we can regulate. And uh, that's one of the things that we have to do. Well, related to that, you also write about the cost of elections. I'm someone who's worked in the news business most of his adult life. Paper and ink cost money. Broadcast stations cost money. Production crews, travel expenses, they all cost money. How do we go about bringing down the cost of elections and the gap, the wealth gap in candidates? I mean, the ability of some people to raise millions and millions of dollars uh, while an ordinary citizen may be running for a local office, you know, is extremely limited. Well, we can set some limits on campaign contributions, but the bigger uh, answer to your problem is we're going to have to uh, publicly finance campaigns. That doesn't mean that candidates can't raise some money from smaller contributors. Uh, people talk about different levels, up to $250 per individual, a little more for organizations like labor unions or business organizations. Uh, but the bulk of the money should come from the government, should come from the taxpayers. Now, people say, well, I don't want to, I, I don't mind paying taxes, but I don't want to pay for those dirty politicians to get elected. And well, because of that short-sightedness, um, we have um, unlimited uh, uh, expenditures. Let me just give you examples. The last mayor's race in Chicago, the candidates raised from five to seven million dollars each to run for Congress. And I frequently advise people running for Congress, you need two to four million dollars. Um, now, the average person doesn't have two to four million dollars or five million dollars and their ability to get outside groups to fund them or wealthy relatives to fund them just isn't there for the average person. So we cut down the pool of talented people who could be outstanding public officials. Well, you talk about public funding. That's been discussed a number of times. We have limited public funding, I guess, in presidential campaigns. Uh, but I think the question that always comes up is why should my tax dollars go to help someone spread messages that I vehemently disagree with? Well, uh, public funding allows for the debate of democracy. We don't need to have the lavish level of campaign spending uh, that uh, is so common these days, but candidates need to have enough money to be able to get their message to the voters. And so the, you were right, if you're going to you know, put an ad in a newspaper, you're going to take an ad on TV, or even if you're going to buy social media ads, it takes money, it takes campaign staff, it takes uh, direct mail uh, to get a message out. Whatever way you do it, it takes some money to do it, but it doesn't take the over expenditures that we see in the billion dollar presidential campaigns, the nearly billion dollar state governor campaigns, or uh, what has become, uh, it's very similar in the, uh, the level for U.S. Senate. Many of the top U.S. Senate races now cost hundreds of millions of dollars, literally, to run for U.S. Senate. 
Okay, so summing it up, overall, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of American democracy? I think it's our choice. I think we're at a critical point in the future of America. And uh, as you mentioned at the top of the program, the uh, insurrection of January 6th and 2021 gives us an example of how close we are to possibly losing democracy. But I'm optimistic. I believe we've begun to turn a corner and that we can move ahead and that we can follow very sensible proposals for reform that will transform the country and allow a rebirth. Professor Dick Simpson, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Peter. His new book is coming out this spring. It's called Democracy's Rebirth, The View from Chicago. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Capital Cast. Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois, a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation with significant funding from the Robert R. McCormick Foundation. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock saying stay safe and thank you for listening.